Well, dear brothers and sisters, if you would turn with me to the book of Ruth, Joshua Judges Ruth. We continue in our series this Advent season, and we're in Ruth chapter 1, picking up in verse 6, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. Before we dive into the word this morning, let me give you the key truth that I hope we will walk away with from these verses. It's this, the Lord graciously brings us back and receives us when we return to him in repentance, even when we, are, when we return feeling bitter, doubtful, and distressed. The Lord graciously brings us back and receives us when we return to him in repentance, even when we return feeling bitter, doubtful, and distressed. Let's see it from the text. Ruth chapter 1, beginning in verse 6. Then Naomi arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say, I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything, but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, the folks who know these things best tell us, the literary folks who know these things best, tell us that all the best stories, all the stories that really capture our imaginations and get a grip on our hearts and souls, they say all the best stories begin like this, once upon a time. And all the best stories that really capture our hearts and imagination, they end like this, and they lived happily ever after. 
And in a way, we see the truth of that even in this book, don't we? It begins in its own fashion with a once upon a time, in the days when the judges ruled. And that's enough really to set the scene for us, isn't it? For those of us who know what a calamitous time that was in Israel's history in the days when the judges ruled, you have only to flip back a page in your Bible to see how the book of Judges sums it up in the very last sentence of that book. There was no king in Israel in those days, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And of course, from the biblical perspective, that had very predictable consequences. Uh, It was said in some of the former Soviet Union countries after the breakup of the Soviet Union that after that government left, for all of its tyranny, for all of the stress and just the awfulness of living under the the thumb of the Politburo and the the KJB, for all the tyranny in some of the uh, the, the former Soviet countries, after that government left and the anarchy that came in in the vacuum was a thousand times worse than any of that because everybody did what was right in his own eyes. And we see throughout the book of Judges just how awful it was. There were invasions constantly. There were a few every now and then moments of peace and tranquility, especially when God would raise up a mighty and godly judge. But those were few and far between. And those were the days in which Elimelech took his family to Moab, in the days when the judges ruled. So once upon a time, And of course, not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but we know the end of the book of Ruth, right? That's why we love it so much. It begins, it ends rather with its own sort of happily ever after. Ruth gets her man and they start a family. But of course, it's not just happily ever after for Ruth and it's not just happily ever after for Ruth and Naomi and it's not just happily ever after for Ruth, Naomi and Boaz. It's happily ever after for all of us. And that's because Ruth ends with a genealogy. That's very significant. Very few of the Old Testament uh, narrative books ends with a genealogy. But for Ruth, it's important for us to see that this is David, King David's great-great-grandmother. And and so we may be thinking to ourselves, all right, we're in the book of Ruth. It's the beginning of the Advent season. Of course, it maybe doesn't really feel like Advent just yet for us. We've still got Thanksgiving to go if you're particularly adamant about that. But we're, we're, we're in that Advent kind of season, right? But we're wondering, all right, well... Ruth and Advent, what's the connection between this and the the Christmas story? Well, King David is the connection. Because many, many, many years in the future, in this same town, Bethlehem, there'll be some shepherds whose night in the quiet ordinary of the world is suddenly exploded with the angels who come to announce them news of great joy for all people because this night in the city of David, a king is born and he is Christ, the Savior. So the connection between us and Jesus and Ruth is King David. And as I think about this passage and I think about the life of King David, my mind keeps going back to that wonderful psalm, Psalm 31, and particularly verses 14 through 15. Jesus quoted this psalm on the cross when he said, My Lord, why have you, or or rather, uh, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. But we want to focus on verses 14 through 15. David says this, But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Don't you think David probably learned that from his great-grandparents? I think so. Now, I think it's not too hard to imagine David when he was growing up, his mom saying to him, David, don't you forget what Ruth always would say? Lord, you are my God. Don't you forget what she said to Naomi on that road back to Bethlehem, that that, that moment that must have left an indelible impression upon her imagination and all throughout her family. You are my God. And don't forget, young David, don't forget what Naomi said. My times are in your hand. 
Sometimes we think about great Bible writers like David as if they were getting all these things just from the ground or you know, just popped into their head. But no, these were the, the, the fruit of what they learned in their families. And this is no doubt David's own expression of the story of Ruth and Naomi. Lord, I say you are my God. My times are in your hand. And so here's the great theme of this chapter. Lord, you are my God. My times are in your hand, and therefore I will arise and return to you, even, even and maybe especially in bitterness and sadness, even in distress and anger. I will return to you, because whom have I in heaven but you? Well, to, to recap, last week we were in verses 1 through 5, and we left our heroes, so to speak, at the edge of extinction. This is an Israelite family, and they're in Moab now, and they're at the edge of extinction, they left and they came to Moab because there was a famine in the land and, and, and we know how much the, the land was suffering in the chaos and pandemonium of that time. And a certain man named Elimelech, he left his home in Bethlehem, he took his family to the land of Moab and of course we noted the rich irony of all these names. Elimelech means my God is king and Bethlehem means the house of bread and Naomi means pleasantness or delightful. And her children's names, Machlan and Kilion, they mean sickliness and wasting. I think these names give this story a kind of enchanted quality, don't you think? And sometimes we may hear those names and think, well, does that make it maybe kind of fictional? I mean, who, after all, would name their kids sickliness and wasting? I'll tell you who, Naomi. <laughs> Do you remember how Naomi, we see it in this chapter, she, she gets back to Bethlehem and everybody's like, hey, Naomi, is that you? And she's like, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, call me bitterness. And they almost have been like, yeah, that's Naomi. Uh, <laughs> definitely. You remember how she named her kids, sickliness and wasting? <laughs> well, and, and you, but you see how this is a woman who's very, she's a straight shooter, we might say these days, right? She, she calls it like it is. But of course, her and her husband, they're living in a time in which their names probably didn't really seem to fit with their experience, right? Here you have Elimelech, my God is king, and yet he looks around, around about him and everybody's acting like he's the king. Everybody's doing what is right in his own eyes. He must have said to himself, I may be Elimelech, but I'm not living in Elimelech times. And Naomi, she says, I may be Naomi, I might be delightful and pleasant, but these are not delightful and pleasant times, so we'll raise our kids, we'll give them names to match the times in which we live. These are sickly and distressing times. Well, the family comes to Moab in the midst of all of this, and sometime after they arrived in Moab, probably not very much longer after, Elimelech dies. Now, there's still some happiness, even though that's a very tragic event. Of course it is. We, we can well imagine that. But there's still some happiness because the boys get married. And, and we can imagine Naomi, you know, as, as all good grandmothers do, visiting with her grandchildren and, and enjoying all of that, uh, rather enjoying the, the company of her, of her, of her boys and their, and their wives. But 10 years later, these boys die also. So at the end of verse 5, we read that the woman was left without her two sons and without her husband. And so now we pick up the story in verse six. And as we go along, I wanna give you three phrases to capture three critical snapshots in the progress of this chapter. There's a lot going on in this chapter, but three phrases to capture three critical snapshots. If I'd been thinking ahead, I would've put these in the bulletin, so you may wanna just write these down. You don't necessarily have to, but three, three uh, phrases to capture three snapshots in this story. And the first is, Naomi arose and returned. Verse six, Naomi arose and returned. Now this word return, 
is very significant in the biblical story, in the whole sweep of the biblical story. It's this Hebrew word called shuv, and it is the watchword of the prophet Jeremiah. <clears throat> Excuse me, the watchword of the prophet Jeremiah. When Jeremiah comes and he gives his covenant lawsuit against disobedient Israel, over and over and over again, he says to disobedient Israel, shuv, return, return to the Lord. Stop going your own way. Come back to the land of promise. Come back to the story that you know so well. Come back to the Father who loves you. Return. And here we see Naomi so many years before doing the exact same thing. It's the model of repentance. Return. And why does she return? Because she had heard that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. I love this. It reminds me of the old story I heard about the farmer who he would gather his family each night as they would pray around the table, and he'd pray this way. He'd say, Father, we planted the seed that caused the wheat to grow that we made this bread from. And, and Father, we, we, we watered the seed that caused to grow the wheat that we made this bread from. And Father, we cultivated the seed and the, the wheat that caused the, this bread that we made to, to be on our tables. And Father, we prepared it, and it's all here, and we thank you for it all. Because he knew it's the Father. It's God Almighty who causes all of that to happen. We have our part to play, sure, but we're invited into that story. It's not anything to do with us. And Naomi knew this very distinctly. It's wonderful that she knew this. Because you would think, I would think, that if anybody in the whole world might have had reason to suspect that maybe God wasn't in charge after all, that maybe he wasn't in charge so much as to even care for her own family, Naomi would have had cause to think that. But she doesn't. She'd heard that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So no matter how dark and dramatic the events of life may be, Naomi knew, and we can know, that God is still at work, and he's choosing to act through his ordinary people. Have you seen God in the ordinariness of your life? Here's a profoundly ordinary family who learned that Jesus is their constant friend. Have you seen God in the food that you put on the table before you eat it as a family? Have you seen God in the friends that you have? Have you seen God in the various aspects of your life story? One of the reasons why God highlights for us in this particular book, this profoundly ordinary family, is so that we would know the kind of care in the ordinary details of our lives that he exercises over us. And it's a deep encouragement to us when we are in deep distress to arise and return to him. God watches over me and he watches over you. He's our constant friend. He's interested in the mosaic details of, of our lives. He's transcendent, yes, but he's also imminent. There was an Old Testament theologian called Helmut Thielike, kind of a funny name, but he had a very profound insight. He said, tell me how lofty God is in your estimation, and I'll tell you how little he means to you. Now, he didn't mean that we shouldn't have big thoughts about God, about how good God is, and how transcendent he is, but he meant the more you kind of relegate Jesus and the Lord to far off, kind of out there aspects of your life, very little will he have to do with the ordinary details of your life. So he's not going to mean very much for you. So the more you try to make God lofty and out there, he, he's concerned with the big events, with what's going on in Washington, D.C., but he doesn't care about me when I'm in the doctor's office. He's not interested in that. God's, God's concerned about the war in Ukraine, but not about the food that I put on my table or about my job. He's too lofty for those things. Well, that betrays a kind of ignorance about how Jesus is our constant friend. Naomi knew this. Naomi knew that God was the kind of God who visited his people. And that's why she arose and returned to him. William Cooper put it like this in words that are very familiar to many of us. Ye fearful saints, 
Fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense. Trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. I reckon that those words probably were, have been quoted in every series that had ever been done in the book of Ruth. But I'm happy to add to that cliche because they're so perfectly a summation of what Naomi learned. And, and by the way, one of the ways in which we can live this reality is to be very careful about the way that we practice Sabbath rest. It may seem like to you a, a funny application to draw, but I think it's vitally important for us to have that time where we take a step back and say, Lord, you're the one who provides the bread that I eat. Lord, you're the one who gives me the job that I have. Lord, you're the one that sustains my life. Uh, this week, Lord, I faced many difficult things. Perhaps I've gone to the doctor's office and I've heard some scary news. Perhaps I've had conversations with my children and I don't know how to respond. Perhaps I'm in a tip with my wife and I just don't know how to love her. Perhaps uh, thousands of things are weighing upon my conscience and, and it's so difficult. Lord, you are in control of my life and I'm gonna take a step back and I'm gonna rest because behind even the most frowning providences, you hide a smiling face. So despite all Naomi's bitterness and despite maybe even her anger, Naomi arose and returned. That's the first snapshot. Second snapshot. But Ruth clung to her. Ruth clung to her. Verses 7 through 18. Now, we see that Orpah and Ruth both walked with Naomi out of town. This was actually a customary way to say goodbye. In our day and age, we, we kind of do it half-heartedly, don't we? And it's like, well, okay, bye, see you later. But for them, this was a very serious thing. So they walk with Naomi about halfway between Moab and Bethlehem. That's a customary way for them to say goodbye. And Naomi, after they're out of town, after they're probably far enough away where, where her girls, her, her daughters-in-law, are not going to persuade her to go back to Moab, so she's safe from that, but not so close to Bethlehem that she can't persuade them to return back to Moab. Naomi says, go back to your mother's house. Now, in the Bible, we usually hear people say, go back to your father's house. But Naomi says to these girls, go back to your mother's house. And probably what she means by that is, go back to the place where you at least have a chance of getting back something like a normal life. Go back to the place where maybe your mom can help you find another husband, where you can have another family and you can get back to something like normalcy. Go back to your mother's house. And you see the way she reasons with Orpah and Ruth. She's basically saying, be sensible, girls. Be sensible. You see what's happened. I mean, even if I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband tonight, we should get started right now, are you going to wait 18 years or more so that when these boys grow up, they can become your husbands? Are you going to refrain from marrying in that time? Of course not. Be sensible. Go back to that life that you once had. Go back where you can get something maybe that will be yours this bitterness that's come against me, it's the Lord's hand against me. It's not for you. It'd, be, it'd add to my bitterness, girls, if you stay with me. Be sensible. Go back. And, and I love the response. They weep together. They lift up their voices, and they weep. Here is pathos and, and love. I mean, after all, it's easy to imagine why they would weep. They'd spent their lives together. Dear friends, remember that tears are a great gift from God. An absence of tears in the face of distress and calamity is not usually a sign of a spiritual gift. Sometimes we can be encouraged to view it that way, but that's not the biblical perspective. In fact, it may indicate that we're not as broken as we should be. There are some distresses that are so great, there are some sadnesses that are so deep and profound that even the biblical perspective is, you need to weep, you need to lift up your voices and cry over what has happened and what the Lord has done. 
Haven't you been here? Haven't we all been here at various times in our lives, right where these women are? Some of you are in a similar place now. Some pains seem unbearable. Some questions go unanswered, and yet the Lord calls for all of us to make a choice. Will we go to Bethlehem with our tears? Will we go to Bethlehem? Will we return to the Lord's presence, or will we go back to Moab and the chance to regain something of what we had before? Orpah listens to Naomi. She says, putting the pieces of the puzzle together, you know what, Naomi, you're right. I'm very sad about it. I'm lifting up my voice. I'm weeping with you. But ultimately, you're right. I'm going to go back. I'm going to go back to my mother's house, and maybe I can try to salvage this life I've got. And Ruth listens to Naomi and says, you know what, Naomi, you're right, and I'm staying with you. And in the course of that, she says some of the most sublime words in all of Scripture, I think. It's worth repeating these again to ourselves. Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or return from following you, for where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything... But death parts me from you. It's fascinating at so many levels that these are the words that Ruth would choose to use to express her devotion to Naomi because they're covenant words through and through. How did Ruth, a Moabitess, learn to speak like this? It's a testament, I think, to how Naomi wasn't as empty as she thought herself to be in that moment. Naomi's example to these two girls must have been deep and profound especially for Ruth, that she would look at Naomi in the veil of tears, in all of this distress and sadness and say, no, Naomi, I'm not leaving you. In fact, your God shall be my God. And this is right after Naomi has said, the Lord has done this to me and it's exceedingly bitter to me. How's that for an apologetic? (laughs) How's that for an evangelistic message? And yet it works because Ruth says, your God shall be my God. Because I see, even in this veil of tears, even in all of this distress and bitterness, that he's with you. He's with you. And that means something. So your God shall be my God, and your people shall be my people. Some of the most sublime words in all of Scripture. So perhaps Naomi was not as empty as she thought she was. Well, dear friends, at various points in our lives, we may find ourselves, like these girls, halfway between Moab and Bethlehem in the wilderness of doubt and confusion. And it may be that we are there because of foolish decisions that we have made. Perhaps we've forgotten that our God is king. Perhaps we are now in the throes of doubt and bitterness. Or perhaps we don't know why we are in the wilderness. Perhaps we're like Ruth, carried along by the providences of God to a strange place in a strange land. But no matter how we came to be in the wilderness, we all have a similar choice to make. Which way will we go? If there's one thing that we can learn from our sister Ruth, this mighty woman of courage and devotion and loyalty and love and faith, it's this. Do not wait. Do not wait until you have everything figured out to make your choice. Return to him now. Ruth was singing that old hymn that so many of us love, even before she knew that it was going to be a hymn. She was singing, Come ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. 
So Ruth, halfway between Bethlehem and Moab, knew she had a choice to make. And she knew that she couldn't wait until she had it all figured out. She couldn't wait until that happily ever after. And yet she knew that God was with Naomi and God was with his people in Bethlehem. So she made the choice. She will arise and go to Jesus. So dear friends, never give up on the hope of repentance. Never give up on the hope of repentance. And never dismiss the possibility of repentance for yourself or for others. Remember that repentance is the profoundly humanizing act. For us who by nature are sinful and far away from Jesus and from God, the source of all life, who are alienated from him and by nature objects of wrath, for us, returning to him is the profoundly humanizing act. It's the thing that makes us what we were meant to be in Christ Jesus. And so for us to say, well, I don't think repentance is really possible now, and especially if we were to look at others and say, I don't know about him or her, repentance may be too far off from them, is ultimately to deny them the very source of their humanity, to return to Jesus. So never dismiss the possibility of repentance, and never dismiss the possibility, in fact, I'd say the certainty, never dismiss the certainty of God's reversing the lowest circumstance. Won't he do it? He will. He did it for Ruth. He did it for Naomi, he'll do it for you. So Ruth clung to her, second snapshot. Third snapshot, not Naomi, but Mara, verses 19 through 22. Not Naomi, but Mara. Well, Ruth and Naomi, they continue their journey. They arrive in Bethlehem not very much longer after. And the whole town is stirred with the arrival of these two widows. Now, that may be kind of hard for us to imagine. If somebody new comes into Cobb County, we don't know about it. If somebody new comes into Atlanta, we really wouldn't know about it. But in a small village like Bethlehem, this would have caused quite a stir. It's small enough that they know, and they know who Naomi was at one point. So the whole town is stirred because of her. And don't you think that would have been particularly painful for Naomi? You and I have been in these places sometimes, right? Something tragic happens in your life, and sometimes you feel like the last thing you want to do is go to church on Sunday, because you know people well-meaning will come and they'll ask you questions about it. They'll try to love on you, and you're just not ready for it. You don't want to answer the questions. You don't want to rehearse the story. It's just too tough. Naomi was in that same situation, but probably even more painful for her, because to have a family on the edge of extinction in Israel was the ultimate insult, the, the, the ultimate denial of who you were as an Israelite. So, so they're all looking at, is this Naomi? Is this Naomi? Of course she would say, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Call me bitter. Think of the memories that would have been stirred in Naomi's mind as she returns after about 10 or 11 years. You know, she sees the place where she met Elimelech, the place where they courted, and all the memories come flooding back. How painful that must have been. So it raises a question for us. Have you ever experienced the shame of returning after you distrusted God and went your own way? What did you learn from this? That's a question, by the way, I just pulled straight from the devotional. We've been thinking about it, if you've been following along in the devotional, all this week. But it's a worthy question to think about. Have you ever experienced the shame of returning after you distrusted God and went your own way. Maybe Naomi was thinking through, we don't know exactly all the conversations that she and her husband would have had before they left for Moab. Maybe, maybe Elimelech came to her and said, Naomi, things are tough here in Bethlehem. I mean, it's the house of bread, but there's no bread anywhere. And, you know, the boys, they're saying they're really hungry. I've heard Moab, it's got bread. We should probably go there. In which case, she probably was reproaching herself. Oh, I shouldn't have listened to him. I should have said, no, Elimelech, we're not going to leave here. Or maybe she was the one who said to Elimelech, Elimelech, we got to feed these boys. 
They're really hungry. Moab has bread, let's go there. In which case she would have been saying, if only I hadn't said that. If only we hadn't gone back to Moab. Naomi knew the shame that we all experience when we return after a period of distrusting God. What did Naomi learn from this? Well, she says, initially, call me Mara. In other words, what she's saying here is, I don't recognize myself whenever you say, delightful, pleasant, that doesn't correspond to anything in my experience that I can say, oh, yeah, that's me, I'll, re- I'll respond to that. But if you say to me, bitter, oh, bitter, yeah, I might respond. I recognize those words. I hear something that matches my reality. You know, the, the more I think about this, the more I really come to, to love and admire Naomi. It might seem like a funny thing to say, but there's real honesty here. And in its way, it's almost refreshing. We should not hide our feelings or pretend that they're not there. If we try to press our bitterness, even our bitterness against hard providences or the things that God does, if we try to press our bitterness down into our souls, it may, in fact, it almost certainly will wreak havoc in our lives and probably in ways that we're growing, even as difficult as it may be. And how are we growing even as a congregation to handle that? You know, how's this for how do you do? <laughs> Naomi, is that you? Don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. Where, where do you go with that? Like, how, how do you respond to that? You know, that, that's awkward. <laughs> so, but how are we growing as a congregation to deal with the pains and the bitternesses that all of us at some point of our lives as we walk with the Lord are gonna experience? How are we doing in being able to say, okay, you're in the throes of bitterness. For a time, I may have to call you Mara, but I'll be with you because the Lord is with you and he's with me. So don't pretend that your bitterness isn't there. Be honest about it. And notice also that Naomi doesn't attribute these dreadful things in her life to chance. She doesn't, but to God. I mean, she says very clearly, verses 20 through 21, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity against me? That word Almighty is the word El Shaddai. And I love what one commentator, J. Alec Mortoyer, or however you say his name, something like that, he says this, El Shaddai means this, God is at his best when we are at our worst. El Shaddai means God is at his best when we are at his worst. And do you see why it was so critical for Naomi to have a knowledge of God and his dealings? It was the key for her to life and not to take away all questions, but to fill us with a certainty that our times are in his hands. When we return to him, he will by no means turn us away. He may not answer all the questions that we have in that time. He may not take away all the pains that we are experiencing. He may not even relieve us of all the bitterness that we feel, but he will be at his best when we are at his worst. We are at our worst because he is El Shaddai. But how will it all turn out? That's the urgent question that our text leaves us with. It's the urgent question pressing upon many of you now. How will it all turn out? How will my life turn out? As you look at the life you are in and the circumstances you are facing, how will it all turn out? And I can't give you a full answer just yet. Our text doesn't give us a full answer just yet, even for Naomi. But I can point you to the wonderful sentence at the end of verse 22. 
And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Don't miss that. Do you see it? Do you see it in the contrast between verse 1 and verse 22? First famine in the house of bread. And now Naomi returns at the beginning of barley harvest. She's not as empty as she thinks. The, the situation is not as desperate as she thinks. It's hard for her to see. It's hard for us sometimes to see. But she's returned to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. God is with his people. Won't he do it? And he'll do it for you too. Here's the truth that John Newton, who wrote that wonderful hymn, Amazing Grace, that we all love so much, he knew it well. He says this, Like sheep, we are weak, we're destitute, we're defenseless, we're prone to wander, we're unable to return, and we're always surrounded by wolves. But all is made up in the fullness, the ability, the wisdom, the compassion, the care, and the faithfulness of our great shepherd. He guides, protects, feeds, heals, and restores, and will be our guide and our God even unto death. Then he will meet us receive us and present us unto himself and we shall be near him and like him and with him forever. That's a wonderful and beautiful truth. And so our text leaves us for now right here in Bethlehem, filled with anticipation in the city of David where many years later some common shepherds in the quiet ordinary of the world would one night be visited by that heavenly host of angels singing that glorious song, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. But more about that later. For now, safe in the shadow of the Lord, beneath his hand and power, I trust in him, I trust in him, my fortress and my tower. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for Ruth and we thank you for Naomi. Lord, we thank you for giving us this story to remind us that you are our ever-present ever and constant companion. Lord, that you visit us. You return us to you. You remind us that you are always for us. And even in the throes of bitterness and doubt, which many of us have experienced, many of us even this morning are there. And we're wondering, how will it all turn out? And yet, Lord, what a courage, an encouragement and a comfort it is to see in these words that you are for us in every good way. So Lord, help us to live this reality. Help us to follow in the faith of Ruth. Lord, help us to return with Naomi. Help us not to wander in the wilderness. Help us not to hesitate in between Moab and Bethlehem. Lord, help us to return to the land of promise, to return to you, to hear that wonderful word that you speak over all of us. I am with you. Your times are in my hand. Yes, Lord, we give you praise that this is true. Help us to live it, to breathe it, to hold it close to our hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.